Now, as we uh, begin our time in God's word, we want God's word setting the agenda for everything we do in the church. So even for this kind of vision, or especially for a vision Sunday like this, uh, we want that. So I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 11 to 16. You can find that if you're using the Bible in the pew rack that looks like this. You can find that on page 977. Page 977. And I ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, I don't want to be the one setting the agenda for this church, heaven forbid. Nor should any of us. We want you to be able to set the agenda for this church and every church. And so use your word to shape us that each of us would be people who are giving ourselves to the work you've called us to be, to do. Open our hearts right now to the realities of this sermon so that we can be doers of the word and not just hearers. This is spiritual work. We're asking for your spirit to work in our midst. In Jesus' name. Amen. In order for the sermon this morning to have its proper effect, I need you to know that the sentence I'm about to say, I'm saying sincerely, soberly, without hyperbole. And here's the sentence. This sermon will teach you the most powerful thing you can do to change the world. The sermon will teach you 
the most powerful thing you can do to change the world. It's important to understand because I think a lot of us in this room feel like I've kind of been put on the shelf. I I can't do much. I'm of little importance or of little significance or at this stage in my life or because of this situation in my family or whatever it might be. I, I don't know that I have anything to offer. I think this sermon will teach you otherwise. To our human eyes, who are the world changers? Elon Musk, Nelson Mandela, Billy Graham, and of course, Queen Elizabeth. And at some level, of course, it's undeniable that such figures have a disproportionate impact on our world. But the story of our world is not ultimately written by heroic figures and their disproportionate sway. The story of our world is written by God Almighty. And when God tells us how his story is written, he says things like, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18. Or, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth uh, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Christ, his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's Psalm 2. I could go on and on, but from God's vantage point, he doesn't lend greatest significance to the ever-cycling affairs of this world. Rather, the greatest significance relates to the new kingdom and the new king who will usher that kingdom in one day. And given the nature of that kingdom, sometimes the most significant are those who seem least in this world. In God's script for this world, the single mom who is trusting God is every bit as significant as Billy Graham. His world and his kingdom is upside down. He says in Matthew 19, many who are last will be first, and many who are first will be last. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. And Jesus once said, truly I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all of them. Luke 21. 
The key to impacting our world then isn't gaining influence or gravitas. Rather, the key to impacting our world is getting in line with what God is doing in this world. I remember when this lesson first hit me hard. I was in university. I was in my first year of university. And I was part of the University Christian Fellowship. And that, that Friday night at our gathering, a handful of people, alumni, came back. And these were people who had been, in a sense, heroes of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. They had poured themselves into gospel outreach at the University of Chicago, partnering with other University of Chicago students to try and make the gospel known and help others grow in Christ. And you could tell by one or two others in the room that it was a pretty big deal they were there. But most of us, including myself, had no idea who these people were. I remember what a strange thing that was. Like, here I was trying to pour myself into university, and these people, just a couple years later, completely unknown and forgotten on their campus, except for a handful of fourth years. And I went to bed that night and was reflecting on that. And I thought, it doesn't matter what I do these four years of university. I, 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 hold on, it doesn't end there. It does matter. But in the sense of what I do, who I am, I'll be forgotten. My efforts will be for naught. But here is the deeper thought. God is working in this university. And he's using different people in different seasons to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. And that's what lasts. That's what has impact, what God is doing in this world. So I don't need to be remembered or do anything of significance. I just need to get in line with what God's doing because that's what's abiding, that's what's significance, and that, that's of significance, and that will last. The way to have the most impact on our world is to be in line with what, is, what God is doing in this world. So in light of that, this sermon's going to answer three questions First, what is God doing in this world? What is God doing in this world? Second, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? And third, how does a Christian grow? How does a Christian grow? Now, each of these questions actually follows from one another. And when you take the three questions and their answers combined, it will show us what we can be doing to be changing our world. And as such, they will give clarity to our vision for this church. What is God doing in this world? What is a Christian? And how does a Christian grow? So let's look at how the Bible answers each of those questions. So first, what is God doing in this world? In short, he's redeeming it. He created it good. We rebelled against him and as a result made quite a mess of it. And from that point on, which is just Genesis 3, right at the start of the Bible, from that point on, the Bible keeps telling us about how God is going to redeem the world. There is this future, better world, the perfect, eternal world. 
It's spoken of at length throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. There's this messianic figure, this anointed one, this one who turns out to be Jesus, who's going to usher it in whenever our present age draws to a close. So for all of us who are here, whose hearts long for something greater, something better than this world, whose hearts ache for a forever kingdom that God will usher in, ache for that true home, that true place of rest, that true paradise. What we are longing for is the very thing God is doing and will ultimately do in Christ. But here's the problem. The rebels who caused the problem in the first place should have no part in that future kingdom. And we'll just mess it up again. But that's actually why God sent Jesus, his son, to take our penalty, to die in our stead, not only so we could be forgiven, but so that we could be given his standing, made new, made like Christ. And live with him then in that eternal kingdom. And so the scriptures teach that anyone, anyone who entrusts themselves to that Jesus can be forgiven and made new so that we can enjoy the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. So so God is redeeming the world. But I want to make a little clunky analogy here. If we're going to, let's liken that that future perfect kingdom to the best concert ever. If that were true, God has the lead guitarist of the band out in the streets busking in anticipation of the concert. So he wants, he wants everyone, not just those in the concert hall who said this is going to be great, Got their ticket. He wants everyone, everyone to know what's coming. He wants the world to have a preview of the real thing. So how does he do that? It's not an actual band with a lead guitarist. First Peter 2.9, it says, But you, the church, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So why are we this priesthood, this race, this holy nation, this possession of God? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Revelation 4, it's talking about why Jesus is able to usher in the eternal kingdom to open the scroll with all those seals that would ultimately mark the end of this age and the beginning of the eternal age. And it says, what has he done? And it says this in in Revelation 5, by your blood, you 
ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So he ransomed them, were forgiven, but it says, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He didn't just redeem us, ransom us. He also made us into something. A kingdom, a kingdom of priests, representatives of God to this earth. See, God is forming a new humanity to serve as a preview of the real thing. And that new humanity might have celebrities and power brokers in it. But it will also be populated by seamstresses and refugees and school teachers and widows and abuse survivors and mechanics. From God's vantage point, this new nation made up of all different types of people, this new nation that he is forming is far more important than who wears the crown or who wins the war. So that's what God is doing in this world. That is the script he's writing. And you see the important role that this new nation, this new humanity, this Jesus' people plays, this kingdom of priests, this group of Christians, followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus. So that's why that first question leads us to the second question's question, what is a Christian? What is God doing in this world? What is a Christian I can answer this question two different ways. You could do it by focusing on the roots of the tree. Or you could answer it by focusing on the fruit of the tree. What is a Christian? You can think about the roots of the tree, or you can talk about the fruit of the tree. The Bible actually does both. So let's start with the roots briefly. To change the analogy, the Bible will flip open the hood on us so we can see what's going on underneath the surface. And there we'll see four important truths or components of what a Christian is at the kind of under the hood level, at the root level. The first important component is repentance and faith. A Christian is someone who realizes his helpless state lost in his sin, and so turns from embracing his sin, that's what repentance is, that turning, and then entrusts himself to Christ. Repentance and faith. So the second component then is a new heart. On the basis of our faith, a Christian is given a new heart. His very nature is changed Jeremiah talks about it like removing a heart of stone and replacing it with a, a new heart, a heart of flesh. Sometimes called being born again. Third component is adoption. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that paid the penalty for our sin 
removes the barrier that separates us from our Creator. The sin that severed us from our Heavenly Father is forgiven. As a result, we are restored in that relationship with our Heavenly Father. The Bible talks about this using the term adoption. We are connected again to our Creator. You have faith and repentance. You have the new heart. You have adoption. And fourth, you have the Holy Spirit. When God makes us new, he adopts us and he also seals us with his Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by God's very Spirit. That's, that's real quick, but if you focus on the roots of the tree, when you're looking at what's underneath the hood, that's what you're going to find a Christian to be. That's often how we talk about Christians. You'll hear Christians talk a lot about being born again or trusting Jesus or the new heart he's given us. And that's good because the Bible often talks about Christians that way. But sometimes the Bible talks in another way about Christians. Instead of talking about the roots that are ultimately what allow the tree to be healthy, it sometimes talks about Christians in terms of their fruit. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And in John 13, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And Peter wrote in 2 Peter, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. So, so then, what, what is a Christian if we're thinking of it in terms of fruit? Put simply... It's someone who's growing more and more like Jesus. You saw that in Ephesians 4 when we read it earlier. We're all grown up into him who is the head, into Christ. Full measure of the stature of him. See, when, when God first created us, it says he created us to be image bearers. He created us in his image to be his representatives on earth so you could see a little bit what he's like as he walked and filled the earth and subdued it. They'd say, oh, that's what the true creator's like. But our rebellion against our God marred our ability to do that well because we're severed from our creator by our sin. It was no longer natural for us to accurately reflect him. And so then Jesus comes along and the author of Colossians, God, God inspired the author of Colossians to, call, to tell us that he was the image of the invisible God. So that as God's spirit works in us, we grow more and more like Jesus so we're better image bearers of God. And we can put all sorts of flesh on this and the Bible does. I already read that list from 2 Peter 1. Probably the most famous list is 
list is from Galatians 5 where it talks about how the Spirit produces in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you read 1 Corinthians 13, it's a very powerful description of what a Christian looks like. But Jesus boiled it down to this in Luke 10 and elsewhere. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, growing in our love for God, growing in our love for those around us. Vertical love, horizontal love. So what is a Christian in terms of fruit? A Christian is someone who looks more and more like Jesus. We're image bearers reflecting to the world what God is like. And we do that by loving God more and more and loving others more and more. Even if we do it feebly or imperfectly, we're the lead guitarist out busking in the streets of this fallen world, hoping people will hear our tune and want to come to the great concert at the end of the age. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, Jesus said in Matthew 5. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, when I hear we're we're supposed to be the city on a hill, the light, does two things to me. On one level, it really motivates me. I'm I'm excited. That's what I want to do. I want to be that person. I want to be that light to cry of Christ to my neighbor, to my family member, my coworker. That's I think the coworkers of this church are Christians, but I still want to be a light to them. But I want to be part of that movement. But on another level, it intimidates me. Because I'm aware of how short I fall. I'm increasingly aware of how all sorts of who I am, all sorts of aspects of who I am are tainted by sin. It's like, if I'm the busker, will people even want to go to the concert? But fortunately, the scriptures don't say it's up to us to gussy ourselves up, to look good for the world. We don't have to transform ourselves into a great guitarist like The Edge or John Lennon or Rob Baker. Just as God saves us by his grace, he sanctifies us by his grace. In that Revelation 5 passage I read, Jesus is fit to open the scroll, not just because he's ransomed us, but because he is making us into a holy nation, priest for his God. 
God is the one making this new nation. He's the one changing us and training us. And that leads to the question, how is he doing it? What is his means of transforming us? Or you could say it brings us to the third question, how does a Christian grow? What is God doing in this world? What is a Christian? But how does a Christian grow? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit that I mentioned earlier, makes clear that Christ-likeness is the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, it's Spirit-wrought. But look in Galatians 6 with me. Galatians 6 on page 975, 975 of your Bible, if you're using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived, God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, there are means that the Spirit uses to change us. And if we want the Spirit producing His fruit in our lives, then we sow to those ends. We pursue those means. In Ephesians 6, it talks about the armor of God, and it talks about what the sword of the Spirit is. And it says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And then just after that it says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. So these two things that we do that are work-related 